At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. Today we have a very special treat. I know I say that a lot and I always kick myself for doing that, but on our show is another podcaster, far more polished than I will ever be, and I look up to him and, and everything I do, Dr. Eric Larson with the Paradox Podcast. Dr. Larson, thanks for joining us on Healthcare Americana. It's always a pleasure to talk to a fellow person who spends time behind the microphone. It's my pleasure, Chris, entirely. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I was uh, I had the privilege of being on your podcast uh, a little while ago and had a great chat about you know what we're doing on Freedom Health Works and and direct care and direct primary care and and all the different iterations that come of it. And you and I were connected um, recently you know, and more formally at kind of a little event uh, you know for frustrated physicians in Central Michigan who said there has to be a better way. What what can I do? And you're very active, not just in the podcasting, but within the state of Michigan. Give us a little bit of background on kind of how your journey led you to this point, and then all the different organizations that you are involved with, and not just practicing medicine and podcasting, but you're doing so much for the physician in your state. And, and I think that's it's a heroic effort, and I applaud you. Well, that's very kind of you to say. It's funny, I was thinking about this a couple of years ago, that a really good saying is your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. And I, I find that that is so true. When you really think about it, you know, if you're really fastidious, you sometimes spend too much time cleaning, you know, or something like that. And my problem is I, there are, I have a lot of interests and a lot of things I like to do and a lot of things I get involved in. And then I get really stretched then. And so you mentioned all the things I do. It's actually quite a bit of stuff. So, uh, and then I find myself struggling to sort of, you know, I think do a good job with them. But so I ran, I started the podcast, The Paradox, that's with a CS, some dead joke humor there. And I started that in 2018, basically as with an interest, I've been interested in medicine, organized medicine, and just healthcare in general as a practicing anesthesiologist. And I wanted to explore some things that I think are solutions for some of the problems we face. One is direct primary care. And so that was one of the issues that I had in mind. The other is the certification process, the recertification process for credentialing for physicians, which is a problem. And the third is just the third-party payer system. And so I thought I had three good episodes in. Uh, you know, I think your episode is episode 171, so I've come up with some new ideas since then. <laughs> but I think I've, in many ways, doing sort of the similar what you're doing as far as your show work. And finding people who are doing disruptive, innovative things within the healthcare space. How are people finding solutions to solve the problems, both for patients and for the physicians? Because, you know, medicine not only sucks for patients, it sucks for physicians in lots of ways, too. And so that sort of mindset has led me to other things like 
get involved in State Medical Society, where I'm now on the executive board for the State Medical Society in Michigan, where we you know talk about organized medicine and its scope issues and its legislative and regulatory changes and super exciting stuff, but actually important, right? And because of all these conversations I've had on my show, I've run into people and become friends with people because I don't know your experience. The best part of the show is just meeting some really cool people doing really neat things. It's kind of fun learning their journey or what they're thinking. I agree. 100%. Yeah. And and so through that, I've you know met people in my community, doctors that I you know had some conversation with in the operating room, but even more so and in, in more in depth. And then I've learned about what they're doing from a business venture, how they're practicing differently. And that sort of led to how we connected because my friend, Randy Lovell, who's been on my show, he's an orthopedic surgeon who now opened his own private practice, left the big healthcare system, and he is practicing basically without any anesthesia for an orthopedic hand surgeon. So he does almost everything under local anesthesia. Really cool. Recommend you check out my show or just find the Lovell Hand Center. It's really neat what he's doing. But he got a letter from a friend of his who was burnt out. I mean, it was, it was a sad letter and just was the very definition of being burnt out in medicine part of a cog in the wheel, you know, you're getting chewed up and he's a primary care. He's just, he's floundering. And so we thought we should do something. And so we set up that meeting, doctors saving doctors, not really having any idea what it is. There was no agenda except, Hey, we're going to get a bunch of people to talk about what they're doing and how they're surviving. And it became a kind of a really cool event. I don't even know if you could describe it. It was sort of some stories about people struggling, some people with their faith led them to medicine or how they left the healthcare systems or they've started their own practice or whatever. And so it was just really neat. I mean, I'm, I am sort of ironically have the most boring vanilla sort of practice, standard practice, right? Insurance based, all that stuff. I don't do any of this innovative stuff. I just, I guess, help other people find out about it. I have a DPC doc. That's like the only sort of neat thing I did. I guess I went without insurance for 15 months and talked about my experience on my show where I had a health sharing just because of strange health job situation. But that's sort of, you know, encapsulated. This is a long answer to sort of a short question, but it's kind of how I'm here. And then totally unrelated, but because I'm, and I'll mention it just because it's the other thing I'm doing is I have, I got picked up on another podcast where we just talked about Michigan State basketball, which is a sort of a personal passion of mine. It's a show I always listen to. And so now I'm part of that, which is called the final Fords on the schedule for those seven or eight Michigan State basketball fans who are listening to your show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to take that bait. Okay. Cause uh, <laughs> it's easy to get sucked in there. And we already, already sparred a little bit on the the Butler Bulldogs uh, season coming up here. Not really sparred, but you you actually gave me some some uh, optimism. I think after last year's debacle, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Here, um, going to what you said, the Doctor Saving Doctors organization by Doctor Level. I want to focus there right now. And again, just to reiterate what you said, you know, this is what I kind of mentioned in in, in uh, my opener there that a lot of very frustrated, very just visibly exhausted mentally, physically, people got in a room, physicians got in a room and said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so I applaud that group's effort. I applaud what uh, Dr. Lovell's doing up there. I applaud you for for stepping in there as well. But me being a fly on the wall there and being a part of that, I, I, I mean, I already knew I had a good sense, let's say that. You never never really know quite what what people are going through, but had a good sense that that frustration is pervasive in the medical community. And then be able to see that and talk to you and talk about the stories and listen to your show at the same time, it's therapeutic to know that, hey, look, there's other people who see this and going this route with it, but there's just so much work to do. And from your standpoint, when, when you talk to people, 
do they have a sense that there's a light at the end of the tunnel or is it still just this doom and gloom that um, we see so many of our, our, our best and brightest physicians and providers out there with that sense? I think that's a good question. And I don't know the answer to that really, because I think you see both ends. You see people who have escaped the system and they are definitely much more optimistic. And for me, I mean, I'm in the system, I'm in the thick of it, right? But because I've spoken to so many people who have exited or who have found ways of doing things, I'm far more optimistic about medicine in general and sort of the patient experience and what it can be and what it's becoming for many people than I think I was four years ago before I started the show. I was very pessimistic. I thought, you know, things get nationalized or, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are running everything, PBMs and all the sort of the issues that the global, large global issues. But for the guy in the trenches, I, I think one of the biggest problems, and I'm sure you see this all the time when it comes to direct primary care, when you're talking about primary care physicians, they just don't recognize that there are options, right? I think people in most, many things in life, you're right, you just kind of kind of stuck. And if you're so busy and you're just trying to kind of keep your head above the water, you don't have time to look around and try and figure out that there might be a boat floating by, right? That you can hop on. And so you just are just trying to stay alive. And I think a lot of physicians are like that. If you don't see it in your training, either as a medical student or as a resident, and you don't, you know, there aren't advertisements for direct primary care on TV or the the solutions for exiting are just not obvious. And I think that's one of the biggest problems. And I think there's maybe in some level, there's a little bit less entrepreneurial sort of spirit within medicine. And I think, I think if that's a generational thing, I'm not quite sure, but I think there's just, there are a lot of people who are content with just taking a job and being employed without recognizing that they don't have to. And then also that it comes with a cost and the cost is your autonomy and your ability to sort of <laughs> control things in your life. I, th- I think there's a, there's definitely a temptation to think, well, I've got a, a safe salary or whatever, not realizing what you're trading for that because you know, the, the risk is necessary on some level to sometimes get what you really want and, and to have the relationship that you want with your patients, which is, I think, what draws us into medicine. It's what keeps you happy in medicine. If you lose that, which you see that a lot of times these primary care docs, and actually, really, all physicians, it's not just primary care, but if you lose that relationship or the ability to form relationships that you like, that's really what I think drives the burnout and really the frustration in medicine. We call it an addiction to salary. It's this, so I'm getting a paycheck, so I have job security. And the pandemic really highlighted that for most of our, a lot of medical professionals out there that said, Ooh, wow, I was tossed away like yesterday's newspaper. How did this happen? And it's like you start looking at the payment models and you're like, look, you had zero control over this. You didn't have a relationship with any of your people. The, the payment method was completely screwed up. And you know, to your last point there, this is a group of people that are so empathetic that they've devoted their entire life to making sure that people around them are better. Yeah. And, and I'm like, wow, uh, the irony right there uh, of them being treated that way by employers and you know, larger health systems and them thinking, well, shoot, that's just the way it is. Oh, shucks. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the cobbler's son, right? You don't have good shoes. And so I think these... these these dogs, they, they don't want the empathy, they, you know, treating people and they're not treated very well. And, and I think, so I, your listeners, your show do not know, but I lost my son four years ago in a car accident, our middle son, almost exactly a little over four years ago. And one thing I learned real quickly then was that the financial security is a really important aspect of life. We had security so that my wife didn't work for a year. She was a pediatrician. She just couldn't practice for obvious reasons. I couldn't work for a while. And then every physician started feeling that to some extent during the pandemic. And I think, you know, that to recognize that you need to have that financial security or to have a plan in place for things that are unexpected. And the more control you have over your life and your career certainly helps you 
in planning for that sort of situation. When you're just totally dependent on someone else, you are totally dependent on someone else. And even if they loved you, they're like, well, you just don't have any money. I think that's why thinking these things through is not only from a, I guess, a happiness standpoint, but also just from a security in your life going forward. It's probably useful to think of these things as well. And that, that secure job and salary is maybe not as secure as you thought it was. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Dr. Eric Larson, a practicing anesthesiologist and host of the Paradox podcast. Um, so, Dr. Larson, going into, you know, we talked a little bit about how this is kind of a generational shift away from independent medicine. You are active, amongst other things, in state medical associations up in Michigan, even in the education and medical schools. Is there a reason why you mentioned generational? What are you seeing in the medical societies? What are you seeing in the medical schools when people are learning how to become physicians and then looking at their next steps? Yeah, I think the important thing to recognize is that you only know and learn what you see and experience. So if you're a student and you never see a different type of model of delivering care, for instance, you think that's how care is delivered. If you spent your entire medical school experience in a hospital it'd be hard for you to imagine working in a clinic. Now, people know that people work in clinics, but until you actually see it and walk through and say, oh, this is how it works to run in through a clinic, you don't really know that. And so I think part of the problem is in medicine with the training is we have limited amounts of training in non-hospital settings. And the hospital settings are more restrictive in what you can get for training as well. And so your experience as a medical student is, is limited you're also interacting with people who are, for the most part, employed or you know, in academic medicine. So you're going to get their perspective on what medicine is like. You're also going to get their politics and you know their way that they live their life and their family life. And so you, that's your impression of what it's like to be a physician. And so that is not probably reflective of the physician population in general. And so I think in training, you see that. And without a doubt, there's been a huge shift in the last, well, 20 years, but certainly the last two years since the pandemic of capture by the health systems of private practitioners. And so, and, and even if you're not held by the health systems, you are probably now a venture capital group is a good chance that, that they've purchased your practice, right? Even as a single specialty group. And so we're seeing that like an anesthesia, we've seen a radical change in the state of Michigan, for instance, I think there are hardly any private independent private practices truly in the state of Michigan. And that's a new departure just from five years ago. And so that is changing the nature of medical societies, obviously, and their emphasis on what they're, they're looking for towards. And now you just have more people who are just expecting to be employed. So it's not even like, it may not even be that people are looking to not be employed or not to go into private practice. They just don't even, it, they don't even hear about it or encounter it. And so they just, the assumption is, well, you have to, or they they hear people who have been bought out by the health system. They say, well, they said they got bought out because they couldn't afford the computer systems and there's all the, you know, the compliance issues and it just was too much of a headache. It wasn't worth it. It was too much work from a business aspect. I don't know anything about business. I went to medicine. I'm a chemistry major. I don't know anything about that business. How could I possibly go in and learn how to make money? Right. I'm, I wouldn't know how to do it. So I'm just going to, I'm going to remove that headache and just go ahead and just get employed. And so I think there are a lot of reasons that it looks appealing or at least like the only reasonable sort of approach to getting out and, and practicing medicine. So I, I don't know if it's if it's a mindset necessarily by the students, although it may be. I don't know, but I think it's more just sort of what you experience. It's systemic, but yeah, you talk to you. Know, there's no business education. I'm a chemistry major. I'm going up to medical school. My only business course, if you call it that, I'm using air quotes, you know, behind the camera here, is how to code properly, <laughs> and. 
these are just stories that come back to me, you know, filtered amongst the uh, uh, the trees out there, and uh, it's on the wind, and little little birdies tell me. Um, but there, there's no independent thought, like you said. Like, how do I actually talk to people about this? How do I sell? It's almost this thing that, like, if I advertise like a practice. I'm no better than that attorney that's on the city buses, you know, that everybody kind of laughs at and, and see that. So yeah. it's like, no, 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 it's okay to help grow a business. Like it's fine. Profit's okay. Profit's a great little motive. You got to take care of people that way. But point is, it's that systemic approach that zero education from a business standpoint of revenue minus expenses equals profit all the way up through residency. Most residencies are in teaching hospitals and they say, you know, before, your last year, you need to be signed on. You need to sign this employee contract or else you're going to be left behind. And then what are you going to do about your family and your future, let alone student debt? And I, I guess one of the things that keeps me up at night, and, and I want to ask you, do you see any relief in that? Like, Is there any hope for revamping residency structures, privatizing it, giving them different experiences, building out externships? I mean, is there any way to actually not necessarily fight back, but course correct and give people diverse experiences? I think there absolutely are. And I think people are finding them. And I think you'll start seeing it more and more in the future. I I do think a lot of these trends that happen in medicine, it's sort of like the HMO trend. At some point, everyone was in part of an HMO and then they realized it wasn't safe working and they just sort of disappeared eventually over time. I mean, there are, you can buy HMO plans, but you know what I mean? It has, the, the market shifts and, and money is what drives all of this. And so you talk about direct care, you talk about direct primary care, and the reason it's going to be more and more attractive is because medicine keeps getting more expensive and it's a very a low cost alternative and it's one that delivers high quality care, one that is going to be attractive to physicians. And so I have no doubt that once more people, as more people find out about it, it's going to be greater demand. There's, there's a critical mass that has to be hit and it's not quite there yet, but at some point it'll happen. And I know that what'll happen is there'll just be people who will sign on uh, someone out of residency and say, hey, come work for me at my direct primary care practice. You can get your feet wet. You can either stay here or you can get your own place across town, but I just need help covering call or whatever. That's what's going to happen. And and I think you're starting to see already, you're seeing people leave the larger health systems and they go independently because they're realizing that they have more autonomy. They have, if they come up with a product idea or a different way of delivering care, well, they can't do it within the health system. And I've talked to a number of people on my show and they just left and, and they started their own. They realized that, oh, I can do this and be successful. Well, people find out about that and then they want to do the same thing too. And so I was talking to a doctor just yesterday, actually, he's up in Michigan. He's actually just opening his direct primary care practice, I think today or maybe maybe the next week. He was in academic medicine for 10 years up in Northern Michigan. And he talked to a number of his friends who actually had left the system going to private practice. And they said, yeah, we just left and it's great. It's so much better than it was before. And so, you know, that word of mouth spreads. And as soon as that happens, people realize that, oh, I have options and I can do it. And so I don't have any doubt that that's what will happen, but it's not a thousand people at a time. It's a onesie twosies kind of thing for a while until people recognize that that's what you can do. And then I think the business aspect has always been part of a problem with medicine, right? Like you have to sort of figure that out. But I hope at some point people recognize that the only reason people pay you is because you provide value to them and that you provide a great, and that, that all you're doing in a market is providing someone something of value. If you don't provide somebody value, they won't pay you. And so getting money for providing something is not dirty. It just means that they, they value what you're doing at the time you're providing for them. So I don't, I mean, that's the thing. I am more optimistic, I think, in general. I'm not too worried about the giant legislative changes and stuff like I used to be. That'll happen whether you do it. But I think money is going to drive all this. And I think, you know, the small employers are going to probably move away 
from what they're at the traditional insurance at some point too, because the cost savings would be just so tremendous that you can't, it'll be, it'll be irresponsible not to do it. Yeah, absolutely. We, we see that with, you know, insurance alternative plans or dropping insurance altogether. And we hear from employees that are like, wow, I, I've taken either a sideways move or a step down in income, but actually my paychecks are bigger because this massive insurance amount isn't automatically just sucked out of it right away. People see this. People are waking up to the fact that, hey, you know, inflation is is through the roof here. I need to watch my my dollars and cents and actually understand, yeah, I signed my employee contract for X amount, but only Y amount is going into my account. What's going on here? What do I not need? What can I cut back on? And then, like you said, bring that up with employers and have them drive the change and look for alternatives there. I, I want to touch upon your involvement in the you know Michigan State Medical Association. I honestly do not talk to a lot of physicians. We don't interact with a lot of physicians in our line of work on the Freedom Health Work side that are involved in state level organizations. We don't we just don't see it very much. There's are a few, but most of the attitude is that well that association doesn't do anything for me, so why the hell <laughs> yeah. should I pay my dues? Right. I'm curious, you know, from your standpoint, is that a correct mindset or are you kind of beating your head against the wall saying, "Get involved, people. Come on. This is the only way it's going to change." It's funny because if you asked me 15 years ago, I would have said, why the hell would I pay them? They don't support anything I want. I don't, that's it's a worthless <laughs> organization, right? And, and I think, you know, you have to pick and choose what organization you support. My experience was I ran for state house of representatives back in 2010. And uh, that was just right before that, that I got sort of involved in the state medical society because I recognize one thing that whether I like it, the organization or not, you know, whether you like the MSMS, which is Michigan State Medical Society, when the state legislators have legislation that comes up and they want to know what doctors think or you know what problems there might be with the legislation they're going to turn to that state society and that's who they're going to ask so you don't have to be there to give them your opinion but if you're not there to give them your opinion then they'll just go with whatever whoever is there and that's just a reality that's you know whether you like it or not that's just the the reality and also the fact that the state medical societies usually are the ones who are plugged into the regulatory bodies and those are real important they affect everything that your practice whether it's prescribing opioids, for instance, or how they're going to now make it all e-prescriptions versus, you know, you can write it on a, on a pad, a paper. Those sorts of things all happened from the regulatory standpoint through those to the state. And they usually are plugged into the med- state medical society. And they're the ones who, they may not be able to change the legislation, but they can certainly help craft it or change it so that it's more palatable and maybe more helpful to physicians. And so, you know, whether you like it or not, that's where they're turning. And so, you don't have to get involved in, in the medical society, but I think it's useful because I think you meet people who are advocates for physicians in general in your state, which is helpful if you want to change things. Uh, they're the ones who are going to be there fighting changes to on scope issues. Uh, you know, having instead of having optometrists doing retinal surgery, they're actually going to make sure that they just stick doing you know prescribing glasses and things like you know those sorts of things. Um, and so, if you're a physician, that's probably important to you on some level. And if you don't want to do it, well, you just send your dues in and then know someone's doing it for you, right? That's the other thing. And then if you do want to get involved at some point, you certainly can. So I'm a big advocate for it, but state medical societies are struggling and all organizations are because it is hard to get people engaged because a lot of the things that they used to do from a social aspect, well, you don't really connect that way in life anymore. Now you use social media, uh, you have your other things going on that you don't need to have a the office to some, you know doctor on the street to get your patient in real quick because now that might be part of your health system. So that's, you know, a useless sort of 
benefit. And so there's a, it's sort of diminished in what the state medical societies can do. But it is important to be organized because when the state legislators are making laws, and I don't, in the state of Michigan, we have, I think, one physician in the state legislature of 150 members. So you're not getting much representation there. There are lots of farmers and lawyers, plenty of lawyers, and you know, real estate agents, and et cetera. They don't know anything about medicine. There's no reason to expect them to know anything about medicine outside of them. Just, you know, I go to the hospital sometimes or sit <laughs> with my grandma or something, or my neighbor is, you know, a dentist or something. I mean, that's like kind of the extent of it. And they've got to know about a hundred different topics because, you know, medicine is just one piece of the economy and one part of life. And so it's important to have the medical society. And so I got involved not liking a medical society and I've gone in there. I think, I don't know, I think it made some positive changes. At least I've met a lot of people who are interested in too. And so I think it's useful. It's helpful. I encourage everyone to be a part of it, but I understand if you don't want to do it personally, but I think it's important as a physician to be a part of that just because you need an advocate. And there aren't many advocates for physicians when it comes to the state capitals or the nation's capital. And if you're a physician, you know, that's absolutely the truth. <laughs> people feel it, right? It, it's those people that we really encourage. I mean, it's like, look, if you don't like the way something's going, if you are passionate enough to complain about it, go do something about it. And the way we do that at this point in time in this country is, you know, run for office, get involved in right. organizations like you're talking about. So I, I sincerely applaud you for your involvement in that and taking that extra time to say, you know what, I'm going to make my make sure my voice is heard. And and I've always been a big fan of encouraging people to get involved and say, look, laws aren't going to fix everything. And I hope to God that's not the end all be all of everything is, hey, once we get that law passed, you know, we'll be we'll be good. And uh, most of the time, I want the government to stay out of the way, which, you know, which is why we started this company. And we're such big proponents of, of uh, the DBC movement here. But to make sure you have a voice is something that's powerful in so many different levels. So I appreciate the, the words of wisdom there. And hopefully people will say, you know what, I, I think I will get involved. Run for leadership. And I would add just, just one something. quick thing. Let's say you're a DPC doc and you're like, well, the, last, the reason I went to DPC is I don't want to be part of the health system. I don't want to have people tell me how to practice. I don't even have to get certified because I don't have the privileges of the hospital. So I can just let my board certification, recertification lapse because I, you know, I did my residency and board certified, but I don't need to play their games and jump through the hoops. Totally get all that. But also, you, you know, what if the state regulatory, uh, the licensing says, well, you need to be board certified or you need to, uh, you need to be credentialed to a hospital to have a license or there's some other aspect, right? You want to have someone there advocating to prevent that from happening to, to recognize what you did. And so that's why even if you want to, almost like go off the grid as far as a physician, you are in some ways, you're still on the grid to them. And so you need to make sure you have people advocating for those things. And and that's why it's important to be part of it. That's why we've got a number of DPC docs involved in our state medical society, because they're worried about those sorts of things as well. Amen. That's all I can say to that one. Amen. Last question for you here, following through with your podcast, the Paradox Podcast, which anybody out there, please go check out. They're fantastic conversations. And I swear, this is not, I'm not leading the witness here. What are some of your favorite episodes? What are the conversations that you enjoy having on your show? I had this guy named Chris Habig on a little while ago. And he was, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I said that was not a leading, but thank you. I'll, I'll take that. You no, know, I'll, was, I'll take the praise when it's due. <laughs> it was a great conversation. And I, I have to, I edit my own shows. I don't have a giant production team behind me. Uh, I don't even have a small production team. And so I, what's fun is I get to listen to my conversation. I actually end up smiling and laughing along. Like when I re-listen to them, it's actually kind of, kind of fun because I really have an enjoyable time talking to most of these people. Uh, and I enjoy talking to entrepreneurs and people who, like I said, find ways to get around problems in, in uh, medicine. I get angry sometimes when they're talking about things like, I talked to someone about forced organ harvesting in China. I mean, that was not something the U.S. 
but it's a horrible thing that's happening that they're just thousands of people are being executed and their organs are taken and being sold. That's happening today still in China. And, um, it's a real, I mean, a real problem, obviously. So that was, I mean, really good eye-opening sort of conversation to think that that's happening today. And, you know, we don't really talk about that. I, I've really enjoyed my conversations with my friends like Randy Lovell and how he's, how he's uh, built that practice. I had a great conversation with John Legrand, who's another doc I worked with. He's an obstetrician. And he's taken his obstetrics practice, which he was very good at obstetrician. And I loved working with the OR. He's super fast as far as a C-section gets the baby in out quickly. But he's gone from an average rate of C-section, about 30% for most physicians. He's at 3% now. And he did that just by changing the way he practices. And he did that by not delivering babies, (laughs) interestingly. So he hired a lot of really good nurse midwives who are really good at vaginal deliveries. And he said, you do that. I'm really good at the surgery. So if you get to the point where you have to have a C-section, there's no other way, then I'm your man. And it turns out that most people... If they have the right person working with them, they can get to a very extremely low C-section rate, which is really cool. But he has that level of humility, which you don't see oftentimes in medicine with physicians and a good business model. And he recognized what he's good at, what he likes to do. And then he found people who are better at doing some part that he's not as good at doing. That is uh, pretty remarkable. And it's a really cool thing to see. And it's something that interestingly, the hospital system tried to copy it by just hiring a bunch of nurse midwives. And turns out if you have them do what they were doing before, you end up with the exact same rates of 30% C-section rate. (laughs) So these are really neat. I, you know, I've, I've had some other people I've had on with all sorts of, they started businesses, people written books. I, I can't really pick out, it's sort of like, what's your favorite kid? But um, those are conversations kind of th- stick out to my mind. Uh, and it, I like the fact that on my show, I kind of just do whatever I want. And so I don't have, I don't feel constrained by just focusing on the US medical system or just people who are being, who are entrepreneurs. I kind of talk to everybody. So some people might have an interesting book they wrote. I talk to them. Someone has... Um, interesting you know, tweet or have interesting opinions on something. Obviously the last two years we've spoken a lot about COVID and sort of, you know, how that's been a challenge, you know, from a medical standpoint, what's the right sort of mitigation issues, what, you know, what's, how's the CDC doing those sorts of things. Fortunately, I don't have to talk about that much anymore. Although I think I probably will in a little bit, just to, I sometimes occasionally do a little solo episode where I talk about where my head is, but my impression has been that fans probably like things I like because they seem to keep listening. So I just do whatever I find interesting. And I think if you find things interesting, you have a fun conversation. Most people are pretty cool. And it's kind of fun talking to them and just seeing where they, their head is too. As long as you're willing to learn. And I think that's the key. Like if you come and think you know everything, then you're not going to have a very interesting conversation. I think that's a life lesson right there. Great little takeaway. You allow yourself to listen and you're going to just be a better person for it. So Dr. Eric Larson, practicing anesthesiologist, host of the Paradox Podcast, active in all kinds of different things from little community all the way up to the big stuff over in the beautiful state of Michigan. Dr. Larson, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much. That is going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, and check out our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. 
Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.